The following sermon was preached at Redeemer Church in Tumball, Texas. For more information, go to makingmuchofjesus.org. Good morning. Please take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Today we begin a journey through Paul's letter, first letter in the Bible to the church at Corinth. It is not the first letter he ever wrote to the church at Corinth. It's just the first one that we recognize to be the inspired word of God. He actually wrote four letters to the church at Corinth, and he wrote one when he heard things were not going well. They wrote back, and then he wrote another one to correct even more problems. That, this is 1 Corinthians. And then there's even a more severe letter, a third one that happens in between, and then they think there is the, the fourth one, and that's 2 Corinthians. So those are true. We don't have them. But First and Second Corinthians in our Bibles, we are to see these as the ones that God wants us to have that are profitable for us, for correction, for reproof, and for training in righteousness. For all of God's word is breathed out by the Holy Spirit. And what we see in 1 Corinthians, I think the theme of this book that we'll see over the next course of this year, we're going to be in this book most of the year, is how the cross shapes everything about us. How this is really a book about the cross and the Christian life. When Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.2, one of my favorite verses in the Bible, and really a great theme of Paul's ministry and of all gospel ministry, when he says, and this should be the theme of our lives and our church, when he says, I desire to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And so then he goes on to talk about marriage, and he goes on to talk about spiritual gifts, and he goes on to talk about sexual morality. And so does does it seem that he's contradicting himself? Not at all. It said he is teaching all these things in relation to Christ and him crucified and risen from the dead. That we can really not understand anything in this universe, and we cannot understand anything in the scriptures apart from the reality of Jesus of Nazareth dying and then being no longer dead. This is what 1 Corinthians is going to show us. Sexual sin, sexual purity, spiritual gifts, love, missions, resurrection, the afterlife, all connected to the cross and the Christian life. And today we're just going to begin in the intro. And we're going to look at the first nine verses, verses one to nine, and we're going to see how Paul is laying out how the cross and the church, how they all fit together. And I think in this introduction, I think you can take all of 1 Corinthians chapters 1 to 16, and it's like they've all been shrink-rayed down into verses 1 to 9. Let's, let's listen to God's word beginning in verse 1. The Spirit tells us, Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus, And our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those in every place who call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you. Because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift, as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, 
by whom you were called and to the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's pray. Lord, now we have been called into fellowship with you. And so would we experience it now? In song and scripture and and the Lord's Supper, would, you, would we experience fellowship with you now, Christ? Would you lead us through your word? Would we be pierced through every thought and intention of the heart? And would your spirit move in such a way as he wishes that someone would be born again into the kingdom of the beloved son? And it's in your awesome name that we pray. Amen. Like the church at Corinth, we have been called out of darkness and into the marvelous light. I don't know if you noticed, there's a bunch of callings happening in, in the passage. Verse 1, uh, you can, I want you to see it. Verse 1, Paul called by the will of God. And then verse 2, they're called to be saints together. And what do these saints do together? Verse 2 again, we call upon the name of the Lord Jesus. And then verse 9 at the very end. By whom you were called into the fellowship of the Son. So there's a lot of calling going on that's supposed to happen in the church. And this all comes from the cross. And the first one is that we've been called out. This is what happens at the church at Corinth. They were called out and we've been called out. In the book of Acts, we see Paul's conversion story. He says, I've been called out. As he's going throughout in the book of Acts and he's arresting Christians, he's putting them in jail as, as a Christ-hater, Jesus meets him on the road and then says, I am calling you to be my apostle. And now you're going to be my witness. You're going to tell everyone about me. And that's what he's saying here in verse 1. I was called by the will of God to be an apostle. And you, church, you've been called out too to be saints for him. And this happened to me by God's will. Paul's saying, I didn't call myself. And you didn't call yourself. We were called by him. And this is not... I think a lot of times what happens when you read kind of the introductions to Paul's letters, we can kind of skim them quickly and just kind of move on. Think about the heaviness of the truth of what he's saying, that I am Paul called by God to be an apostle. I am an official messenger, a sent deliverer of the message of the risen Christ himself. I'm a mouthpiece of the risen Christ to you, Corinth. And that's what all of us are today, too. For we are all witnesses to Christ. We've all been given now the ministry of reconciliation. And Paul, when he plants this church in Corinth, this is all significant because what's happening in, in these letters is that Corinth, they don't want to listen to Paul anymore. It's almost like they're listening to the serpent in the Garden of Eden instead of God's messenger to them. They're rejecting Paul. Paul's not really an apostle. Paul doesn't really have any authority over us. Paul, we don't need to listen to him. We're going to listen to these other super apostles, these really impressive guys. And Paul says, I am not impressive. But Paul plants this church. Take in your Bibles and turn to the book of Acts. Go to the left, just a couple, one book, and then go to Acts 18. You see the planting of the church at Corinth. Paul is leaving Athens, and at this point in in the first century, Athens is no longer the cool place in the Roman Empire. It's kind of a boring university town, kind of sleepy, just a lot of 
philosophizing going on, but now Corinth is boomtown. Corinth is striking gold, and here's what happens. Verse 1, verse chapter 18. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. There was a lot of riots happening um, around the Jews and in these synagogues, and so they were terrified that another riot was going to happen, but we know from the book of Acts these riots are happening because of Paul. All these riots are happening throughout the Roman Empire because of Paul and what he's doing in the synagogues. And so here's what happens. So he went to see them, Priscilla and Aquila, and he found that they were the same trade and stayed with them and worked. They were tent makers by trade. They were leather workers. And here's what Paul does. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. So here's Paul. He's evangelizing. He's planting a church. He's trying to win people to Christ. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was, that's the area of Philippi, the Philippians, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed him and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. So he's leaving the synagogue and look at where he goes. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. And look at where his house is. His house is next door to the synagogue. So, oh, you guys in the synagogue don't want to listen to me? Fine. I'm leaving. I'm going next door. (laughs) This guy, Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord, together with his entire household. And the Jews in Corinth are not listening to Paul, but look what happens. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Jesus himself speaks to Paul and says, do not be afraid, but go on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you. No one will attack you to harm you. Parentheses, this has happened in many other cities. For I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. This is Paul planting the church at Corinth. 18 months, he's with them, teaching them God's word, teaching them about Christ, desiring to know nothing among them except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And you can see, and go back to 1 Corinthians now, in verse 1, Paul says, I'm writing this, and so is our brother Sosthenes. Sosthenes is one of the other kind of leaders in the synagogue who comes to Christ and who gets beaten in Corinth in the rest of Acts 18. So they would know this brother. Now, Corinth, as you understand what's happening in Acts and what's here happening in 1 Corinthians, it is a port city. It is a boomtown, popular, edgy, hipster, diverse, economically strong, and filled with sexual immorality. Above the city of Corinth was this place called the Acrocorinth, where every night a thousand prostitutes would descend from the city and work their way through the city as an act of worship for the Corinthians. They opposed the Christian message at first. This is why Jesus speaks to Paul and says, don't be afraid. I have many who are with you. Sometimes we think the cities in the Bible, that they're nice, moral cities. This couldn't be further from the truth. Corinth is like the New York, L.A., Las Vegas, and Houston of the first century. Very immoral, but very successful. Very materialistic. Very proud. Very consumer-driven. Corinth would make Vegas blush. They would be embarrassed at what's happening in Corinth. And even what's happening in the church, if you know this letter, there's a man who's basically committing incest. And the church does nothing about it. They're kind of proud about it. 
the word. A word was invented to be Corinthianized. A kind of a initiation into the underbelly of Corinth and its gross immorality and the craziness that is the city. And Jesus calls many to himself. No one's beyond God's saving grace. And it's easy for Christians in the Bible Belt to look at what's happening in our country and go, woe is me, and develop kind of a, the spirit of Eeyore among us, the sky's falling and chicken little, and all these things together. And now the Supreme Court is taking up the case of defining marriage, and now same-sex marriage is legalized in 36 states, and I bet by the end of the year it'll be in all 50. But Jesus is calling many to himself, just like he did in Corinth. He will do the same here. Paul's writing to this church because what's happening is that the the Corinthian church is beginning to look more like Corinth and less Christian. They're beginning to adopt some of the ways of the Corinthians. They're dabbling in what they used to know. After Paul receives a report from Timothy that things are not well, he receives a a report from Apollos that things are not well, and so now he's beginning to write this letter, and these themes, as I said earlier, they're all bundled up, kind of shrink-wrapped into verses 1 to 9. If you look at verses 1 to 4, Paul is addressing them, you've been called together. He's talking about unity in verse 2. You can see in verse 10, what's the next thing that Paul addresses? I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you would all agree there'd be no divisions among you. They're experiencing massive division. In chapter 6, they're suing each other. They experience a lot of individualism. We're better than other churches. We're, we're Corinthians. We're one of the best cities in the Roman Empire. Everybody wants to be us. We have the Isthmian Games every two years. All the Roman Empire fixes their gaze on Corinth for these great games. Second to the Olympics. Tons of tourism. Tons of immorality. Paul says in verses 1 to 9, you're called to be saints. You're called to be pure, holy. In the church, they're not pursuing holiness. They're excited about the incest that's happening. They're excited about the sexual immorality. They're, they're excited about abusing the Lord's Supper along with eating in the temples to foreign gods. He tells them about the, the return of Christ because they are thinking wrongly about the return of Christ. And in chapters 15, Paul's going to address what is really the resurrection of the dead is all about. So you can see in this intro, he's already kind of laying out, I need to talk about these things that are wrong in the church. They're not listening to Paul. They're sleeping around. They're abusing the Lord's Supper. Sometimes you hear people say, man, we just got to get back to being like the early church. This is it. (laughs) I like the era I'm in. And to top it all off, they're questioning Paul's legitimacy. This is why Paul's starting in verse 1. I am an apostle of Christ Jesus. And he says later, I'm like a father to you. 1 Corinthians 4.15. You have countless guides in Christ, but you do not have many fathers, for I became a father in Christ Jesus through the gospel to you. 1 Corinthians 9, he says, am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my workmanship in the Lord? And he reminds them they too have been called out by God. Look at verse 2 to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together. To the church of God in Corinth. What an amazing thing to consider there. Cosmic realities. Heaven and earth colliding to the church of God. 
God's church. This little group in Corinth, you, you are God's. The church in Corinth is a possession of God. They're not just individuals. They're not just people that gather and hang out. They're a, they're a church. And who does the church belong to? God. This is why Paul will say later, you were, for you are not your own. You've been bought with a price. And us, right here, Tomball, Texas. Redeemer Church is a church of God in Tomball. What a privilege this is. What reverence there ought to be, what awe and amazement that when you look at each other, as we're singing together, as we look at one another in in fellowship, we're, we're seeing God's possession. This is God's possession. That's why we should never speak ill of the church. Even in Corinth and all the issues that they have here, Paul says, you are a church of God. And he even says in verse 4, I give thanks to my God always for you. Now, we've got to talk about some things that are wrong, but I still thank God for you. And right now, we sit as God's assembly. We are a sacred people. You are a sacred person in Christ. There is a massive significance about your life. This is sacred. Not this building. This building is just a building. It's a warehouse. A guy used to keep cars in here. Not the building, but us. We are God's assembly. I don't know what you think church is. Maybe you think it's just people coming together for a pep talk or or gathering together to feel better about themselves. That's not how the Bible describes the church. We are the assembly of the living God, saved by grace, assembled together by God himself. Just in verse 2, Paul uses another way. So he says, to the church of God in Corinth, and then look at how else he describes it. To those sanctified in Christ. So the church of God, to the sanctified in Christ, we are relocated. We are in Christ. And we're sanctified. It's Jesus who makes us clean. Sanctified just means to be made holy and And that's only found in one place in the whole universe. There's only one blueprint for you and I to become holy, to become clean, pure people. Not by human ingenuity, not by trying harder, and not by doing some kind of religious activities and spiritual hoops, but by being in Christ. It's the only way for anyone to be made right with God is to be in Christ. Christ, by being saved by Jesus himself, by believing in his cross and his his death in my place for my sins and his glorious resurrection from the dead. Believing in that isn't just an abstract thing we believe. When we believe in that, Jesus grabs us and he relocates us into himself. Even while we sit here, we are in Christ. And we're called to be saints, verse 2. The sanctified in Christ, called to be saints. Only one person can make people saints. I saw, I think Pope Francis is about to, you know, make someone a saint. I mean, it's not how it happens. You're called to be saints right now. You're in Christ, you're saints. 
I'm a saint. You're a saint. We're, we're all saints in Christ. If we are in him, if we've been saved by Jesus, only the triune God can make people saints. And you might be thinking, as I do often, but I'm not saintly. <laughs> and I know some of you, you're not very saintly. This is why a lot of times the world looks at us and says, you Christians are a bunch of hypocrites. Think you're saints. And it's true to a degree. I'm no saint, but I'm a saint in Christ. We are declared saints, and we're learning to live what we are. We're called to be saints. So now we, what Christian discipleship is, is just learning to live our sainthoodedness together. This is living in Christ. This is discipleship. And think about the church at Corinth, even when all the problems they have. Paul looks at them and says, you guys are saints. I thank God for you. And don't miss the word together. Call to be saints, verse 2. Call to be saints together. With all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Call to be saints together. Do you think this is about your life? That if you really are going to be in Christ and to be a saint in Christ, that there, you are called to do it together with other Christians in a local church. The Christian life is way more we's than me's. It's a lot more us than just myself. Our Christian identity isn't just I'm a saint, but it's I'm a saint together with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're called out, but we're called together. The Corinthians were suffering from major conflict and major divisions. I mean, they're suing each other. They're arguing about who has, more, who has better gifts. And Paul is saying, no, those things don't matter. Look, you're called together. They're, they're fighting over who's a better preacher and who, who follows this guy and who follows that guy. And Paul says, no, you're called to be saints together. And not just that. Look at what else he says. With all those in every place who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus. So what he wants to see about the church of Corinth is that even though you rest and you sit in Corinth, you are connected to every other Christian all around this planet who calls upon the name of the Lord Jesus. Every church is connected to the global and universal church. Every place, those who call upon his name, and that's the essence of a true church, they call upon the name of Jesus. There is a cosmic wonder in every local church. It's not just some kind of gathering. We sing songs and we're hanging out, hear a guy speak. No, there is a cosmic reality that we gather and we're calling upon the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, a man who was dead and is not dead anymore and now who sits on a throne and upholds the universe together by the word of his power. And anywhere that that's happening, we are together. We're family in Christ. Doesn't matter what kind of music they have. They may have different music. They may have different views of the end times. They may have different views of salvation. They may have different views of various aspects of theology. But if they call upon the name of the Lord Jesus, then we are together, both their Lord and ours. What Paul is doing here, just like this, as he's showing them, Corinth, you think you're superior to other churches because of your great gifts, but you are not superior. Jesus is both their Lord and ours. So there's no swagger in any local church. No, hey, we're, you know, we're the reformed church. Or we're, we're the church that we preach the Bible. We're the church that goes line by line. We're the church that there's, you know, we sing from the hymnal and preach from the Bible. 
We're a KJV only church. Or, hey, we're an Acts 29. None of those things matter. We cannot find our significance in those things. All that matters about us and our brothers and sisters all around the world is that we call upon the name of the Lord Jesus. We're together. And this is why it is so just the utmost stupidity for churches to have a competition complex with one another. It's just satanic. We're together for Christ, from mud huts to elementary schools to warehouses to megaplexes, we call on the name of the Lord Jesus. And I love that it's not a past tense thing. He doesn't say, if you look, he doesn't say uh, those who, who called upon the name of the Lord Jesus. No, it's those who do call right now. So this is not just a one-time thing. This is the thing we always do. This is a shorthand description, not just of a church, but of a Christian. Someone who calls upon the name of the Lord Jesus. In what way? In, in trust? Salvation? As Romans 10 says, for all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. In worship, I will call upon the Lord who is worthy. I mean, this is of the Psalms. And in prayer. We've done all those things today. Do you call upon the name of the Lord Jesus? Not just once. I'm not asking you, yeah, I called upon him once in a prayer, in a card, at a VBS, at a kid's camp, at a, you know, some high school guy. That's not what I'm asking. But right now, do you have a life where you, you call upon the name of the Lord Jesus in trust and worship and in prayer? Your whole life calling upon him, that he is your hope. Is there a constant and consistent realization? My life is in Christ. I call upon him, and that's all. He's my hope. And what's so dangerous about a local church, and I think that's exactly what Paul's doing here, is he's trying to lift us and lift them out of their tunnel vision. A local church can often just localize themselves. And we think about our church and, we, and our 10 acres and our plans and, and prayers and all the, it'd be easy for us to, all right, let's just focus on Tomba. Let's just focus on us. Let's focus on us. Instead, he says, no, you're called to be saints together with those in every place who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus. That's why we're supporting church plants in the Republic of Georgia, in Thailand, and, and soon to partner with some brothers in England and about to plant a church in Conroe this year because we are together for the name of Jesus. We've been called out of our sin by faith. We've been called to be together. And this is why, guys, that you would see your life that's connected vibrantly to other Christians. And we're called to have a Jesus fixation. Did you notice how many times Jesus is referenced in verses 1 to 9? Ten. Ten times. This is the intro of God's Word, just like any verse in God's Word, is never a throwaway. Listen, called by the will of God, Christ Jesus. Sanctified in Christ Jesus, we call upon the name of our Lord, Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The grace of God given you in Christ. You are enriched in him, in Christ. You're not lacking any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord, Jesus Christ. You will be sustained to the end by Christ. You have fellowship in his son, Jesus Christ. What is Paul trying to get our minds on? 
trying to get us on the blazing, recognizable Jesus fixation. That we would have only one thing named among us, Jesus Christ and him crucified. This is Paul's passion. I think it's the whole Bible's passion that it's all about Jesus. And Paul is going to address a host of issues, but never severed from Christ and him crucified. There's at least eight things we get or receive from Jesus here. And just in the intro on verses one to nine. We are sanctified. We grow in Jesus, verse two. We call upon the name of Jesus, verse two. We get grace and peace from Jesus, verses three and four. We are enriched, blessed in our lives because of Jesus. And what's happening in Corinth is, as I said, they're a boom town. They're one of the most successful cities in the Roman Empire. They prided themselves on, on being so wealthy. And Paul says, no, you are enriched in Christ. Far more significant than any other human riches. For, number five, we wait for the return of Jesus, verse eight. We are sustained to the end by Jesus. We are guiltless because of Jesus. And verse 9, we are called into fellowship with Jesus. Church, it, how amazing is Jesus? It is all about Jesus. And we can go through the motions and just go through all the songs and go through the Sundays and forget that it is all connected to Jesus himself, the living and breathing Son of God who was crucified in our place and risen again from the dead. And every single one of these will be further unpacked in the book of 1 Corinthians. But look at verse 9. This is really the, what he's after. We were called into fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. We're in fellowship with Jesus. And I, I hope your Christianity has that flavor to it. I can't even fathom how many of us there may be that we're living a Christian life that's really not in fellowship with Christ. I spent years in a church three times a week with a illuminated cross hanging in the background, and I did not really understand how much of the Christian life is supposed to be all about Christ. And it's really all about Jesus, all about having fellowship with Jesus, trying to be like Jesus without Jesus trying to read the Bible without Jesus, trying to enjoy Jesus without Jesus. Real Christianity isn't just about singing songs about Jesus and singing songs to Jesus, but it's about having a relationship, a friendship, an interaction with Jesus. This word fellowship, it's the word koinonia. If you know that, if not, it doesn't matter. It means community. Fellowship, community, relationship. It's the same word for communion that we do every Sunday. We have communion with Jesus. So we have community, we have fellowship with him. And a lot of times we, we would rather have fellowship with words on a page rather than Christ himself. A lot of times we, we have a relationship with a doctrinal statement and not Christ himself. A lot of times we'll have fellowship with a third, certain theological position. But you can't have fellowship with a doctrinal statement. You can't have community with a dead man. We have a friendship with the risen Christ. And what we do in our relationship with Jesus is look at verse 7. As you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. You wait for his revealing, for, for his return. The Bible never directs us to live in fear of the return of Jesus if we're in Christ, but in hope but in expectation, in excitement. 
Jesus will either be revealed to us in our death or he'll be revealed to us in his glorious return. And do you wait for it? And it doesn't mean that you wait for it, that you hope you can get married before he returns. Or you hope that you can see your grandkids get married before he returns. And this is not the kind of waiting like, like we all know very well, especially in Tombo, of waiting in the drive-thru line at Chick-fil-A. We wait, we expect is what this Greek word's meaning. That we're expecting, looking, longing, return of Jesus, because then sin will be gone forever. I cannot even grasp what it would be like to not sin anymore. And that's what's coming our way. I'll never be able to sin again. It'd be impossible. We wait for his return because the dead in Christ will be raised. And we'll be able to all be with Jesus together forever. We wait for his return because he will soon, once and for all, crush that serpent, Satan, under his feet. We wait for his return for the skies to be peeled back and he will vindicate all the blood of the martyrs. He will avenge the death of every Christian in Iraq that has been beheaded by ISIS. He will avenge their blood. And now, even as they are gathered around his throne saying, how long, O Lord, do you avenge our blood? And he says, soon. So we wait, we wait for his return, and we, with those realities looming over us, we can't just bob along like everyone else in America. We can't just act like every other person in America just bobbing along like every, like we have nothing to wait for. Because here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city to come whose architect and builder and founder is Christ. So we long for his return. In verse 8, what, what is going to happen at the revealing? What's, what's this all going to be about? He will sustain you to the end. What joy this brings. Because you and I are not very good Christians. We're just not. We all fall short. We all cannot obey everything this book says. There is really no perfect Christian except one, Jesus Christ. And in his great mercy, he puts us in us. And he looks at us and he says, no condemnation. And he will sustain us till the end. Right now, you and I are only Christians because Christ is sustaining. You and I will remain Christians because of Jesus. Is Jesus your hope till the end? When you really grasp that, you will stand before God in all of his glory and all of his majesty. And the only reason you will enter into his joy is because of Jesus. It hits you like a ton of bricks. And you realize that Christ is my only hope. So what are you banking on to make it to the end? If it's your morality, you're going to be disappointed. If it's how much of the Bible you read, you will be disappointed. If it's how good of a parent or how good of a friend, how religious you are, none of those things will sustain you to the end. Only Jesus. 
We are Christians because Jesus called us, and we stay Christians because Jesus sustains us. And when you believe that, you can live confidently, you can live boldly because Jesus is staining us till the end. And not just the end of our, our last breath, but until the day of the Lord Jesus. That's verse 8. He will sustain you until the end and the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, this final judgment day. If you are a Christian, when judgment day tolls, you will be sustained, you will not be crushed, you'll be not thrown into the lake of fire that is prepared for Satan and his servants because of Jesus. And I love that Paul says, and that you will be guiltless. You will be guiltless in the day. I I don't even think I can capture how incredible this is, but I have to try. So if Jesus is going to sustain us to the end guiltless, so then right now, what are you? If, if to the very end, God says, you're going to make it to the end, and you're going to be sustained guiltless. So right now, that means you and I, according to the king of the universe, if we are in Christ, you are guiltless. If you have believed in Jesus right now, you sit uncondemnable. Pronounce guiltless. And I know for me, and I'm sure this is true for you, you can read it and go, okay, I'm guiltless, but I sure don't feel guiltless. It doesn't make it any less true. And so you can't let your feelings dictate what's true in the Bible. You're guiltless. It's true. So now this verse is here so that you will feel it, so that we will feel forgiven, that we will feel this guiltless gift of grace from Christ himself. God wants the Corinthian church, even in the middle of all of their massive, disgusting, embarrassing issues, he says, you are guiltless. We're guiltless. And it's amazing news that by Jesus taking our guilt, we're now guiltless. Since Jesus died in our place on that awful cross, we will never be found with a single drop of guilt in God's eyes. Forever. And the more you believe that, the more joy you will have, the more freedom you will have, and the louder you will sing, the more you'll be drawn to the Bible when you really believe that I stand right now before God, guiltless. And that I'm going to appear before him, and he's not going to go, you know what? There's one thing, though. It's not going to happen. Now I am forever guiltless, unaccusable, above suspicion. There's nothing. Ephesians 1, 4 says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless. Colossians 1, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. But we did the sins. The gospel isn't like the men in black thing. And just gone from your memory. No, you remember them. And you know, but I did them. How am I supposed to feel guiltless? By believing the gospel of grace you've received in Christ. That Christ has redeemed you from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for you. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. 
that he took it. That he took your guilt and said, I'm putting it on myself. And there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So let's be a church that feels 100% forgiven. 100% cleansed. 100% uncondemnable. 100% loved by God forever. And I don't see enough of you smiling. So I don't think you get it. It is incredible to know you have been pronounced guiltless forever. So chin up. My gosh, rejoice. Satan has been defeated. You've been declared not guilty. Jesus is alive and he sits on the throne. What are you worried about? For my sin, not in part, but the whole, has been nailed to the cross and we bear it no more. So praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh my soul. We have been called out to be saints together, to have fellowship with his son. This is what the church is about. This is what your life is about. It's what my life is about. So let's learn how to have a Jesus fixation from 1 Corinthians. Let's have fellowship with him together. And let's do that at the Lord's Supper. Let's pray. If you're serving the Lord's Supper today, I invite you to to come up. Van, you guys can come up too. Jesus, now, would you help us to believe these astounding, astounding truths that we have fellowship with you and we wait for your return, that we would feel guiltless. Blessed is the man whose transgression is forgiven. So even now, Lord, any sins that we have that we know of, according to 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness so we know that we are guiltless. We want to live this guilt-free life. So now, Lord, we confess our sins to you. We confess any known sin that we have. And it's by your spirit that we cry out, Abba, Father. Help us, Lord. Would you grant to us a Jesus fixation like we've never experienced before? And it's in your holy and awesome name that we pray. Amen.